you have your Bible with me, and I hope you do, and if you don't, um, raise your hand and the ushers can get you a Bible, I would like you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. And we're continuing here today our series through the book of Galatians, but it's been a little while since we last looked at it. Um, I think it was probably December of last year, so, so it's been about five months. And as you can see on the title page on the screen, this series is titled, No Other Gospel. And it's because the letter of Galatians is written by the Apostle Paul to a church which has been infiltrated by people claiming that the Galatians haven't really grasped the whole of the gospel. There, they, there's some more there's a little bit more you didn't quite get. We've got to add a little bit more to it, and, th and then you'll be good. And Paul's response to this is to declare that there is no other gospel. There's no other gospel by which we can be saved than the one that they received first. Our hope is only found in one faith. By faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. To add or to or kind of take away from this good news is to perpetuate a lie, a false gospel. And Paul has been laying out this argument in this letter, pleading with the Galatian churches to not abandon this good news. And today we're finishing up what you can probably think of as the, the first stage of Paul's argument, the first stage of his argument where he's started by laying out the history of how he got the gospel, where it came from, how he got the authority to declare it, and, and where this whole debate around this question of whether the Gentiles should be subject to Jewish law came from. Last time I, I preached on Galatians, this was back in December, we looked at the key issue that was driving this debate in the church, and the question of circumcision. And whether or not the Gentile, a Gentile rather, that would be non-Jews, so you and me, we're all Gentiles here. These Gentile believers had to follow all, or at least some parts, of Jewish ceremonial law. We saw how the opposition to Paul was revealed. How despite the fact that they presented themselves as believers, they were actually false. They were seeking to, to enslave believers. They were adding to the gospel. And then finally, we saw how Paul's gospel was affirmed by the pillars of the church, the big three, Peter, James, and John. We saw the genuineness of Paul's apostleship, and that he has the authority to preach the gospel, and how that was affirmed. And we concluded that we, we need to be unified around the gospel. We need to hold fast to it because only the good news of faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, can really save us. And that brings us here today to where we are, to the end of Paul's biography, so to speak, to the end of where he's, he's laying out the history. And we're about to dive into one of the most famous confrontations in the entire New Testament, maybe the entire Bible. We're about to look at what is called the Antioch episode. A conflict between the two heavyweights of the early church. So today's passage is about conflict. 
And I can see by all your faces that just gives you the warm and fuzzies, doesn't it? Because we all love conflict, don't we? I mean, Canadians are known for their assertiveness, their desire to get into a fight all over the world, aren't we? Maybe not. Have you ever been to a restaurant or, or, or somewhere else where you're lining up and, and there's this guy, some, some guy just cuts into the front of the line, right? You know, there's the person, everyone's waiting patiently in line and then someone cuts to the front, cuts the queue. And most of the time, all of us just kind of stand there and just quietly judge them. We're just like, how dare they? We're just kind of seethe. We just sit there quietly judging them and resenting them. But every now and again, you get, get someone who's, who's so outraged by this, they're like, hey, buddy, you're cutting in line. And then it gets really, really awkward, doesn't it? Everyone just feels the awkwardness, like, like what do you do? In my experience, most of us don't really like conflict. And since I've given you guys such a warm feeling about today's sermon, let me throw in another word which is guaranteed to give you the warm and fuzzies. Hypocrisy. <laughs> How often have you heard someone say, I don't want to go to church because of hypocrisy? Those Christians, they're all hypocrites. Well, our passage today has something to say about that too. You see, the more I look at our passage, the more I look at the Antioch episode, and I've had about five months to reflect on this, so, so I've, been, I've been mulling about this for quite a while now, the more I'm fascinated by it. It's one of the most fascinating events in early church history. Because if I was to poll you and ask you, who are the two most significant non-divine, because you know the smart Alex here are going to say Jesus, um, but the non-divine characters in the early church, who are the most important characters? Who are you going to say? And he guess Paul and Peter. So we have these two facing off in a public confrontation. This is not some sort of private disagreement. This is happening right at the front of the church. That's going to create a bit of a stir, isn't it? So we're going to walk through this confrontation today. We're going to take a look at the setting, the sin, the consequences of that sin, and the confrontation that results. And I hope by the time we're done today that we will all see that our sin is in fact far more serious than we think. Conflict is not actually all that bad. In fact, it might even be necessary. And finally, that the good news of the gospel is so much bigger than our failures. So turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going to see what happens when leaders fail. So starting in verse 11. But when Cephas, I, I just want to stop there for a second, because some of you may be confused as to who Cephas is. So Cephas is Peter. Same, same name. You know, Peter, the guy who walked on water, denied Jesus three times. The, the apostle. Cephas is simply the Aramaic version. So Aramaic would have been the language of the, um, of, of that Jesus would have spoken as he was walking around, and that Peter would have, been, would have been Peter's native language. Cephas is his name in Aramaic, and Peter is the Greek version. So you can use them interchangeably. Uh, Paul uses Cephas here. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his faith, face, because he stood condemned. 
For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word today. So Paul here begins our story in verse 11 with the words, but when Cephas came to Antioch. And this might lead you to ask the obvious question, where was Antioch? What is Antioch? So if you look at the map that I think is going to come up on the screen now here in a sec, so it may be kind of hard to see it, but if you look in the bottom right corner, down around where that red line starts, that's Jerusalem. And if you look at the big green area, the dark green area that's kind of in the middle, middle to top right of the map, that's the Roman province of Galatia. And then, if you were to kind of look down at the bottom of Galatia, you probably can't read them, but there's the cities of Derby, Iconium, Lystra, and Antioch and Pisidia. And these are the likely recipients of the letter to the Galatians, the audience. And then if you were to look in the Mediterranean, kind of right in the corner there, right where Cilicia and Syria meet, the purple and yellow provinces, you would find Antioch. Now, if you were to go to Antioch today, you would probably find this small, insignificant town. But at the time Paul is writing this letter, it is probably the third largest city in the Roman world. It was a major trade hub and a melting pot for a wide variety of cultures and religions. There was a very significant Jewish population who lived in the city. And the Christian community that sprung up from here, as we saw in um, Derek's reading today, was very diverse. This is was, as Derek said, read from Acts, this is the first place the church was actually referred to as Christians, little Christs. The first place it begins to move from being a sect of Judaism to being a global faith. And unlike the church in Jerusalem, which was predominantly Jewish, you have this mix of Jews and Gentiles together. And the city was the Paul's base of operations for many, many years. This was ground zero for figuring out how on earth are Jews and Gentiles, who are now all part of the church, to interact with each other? What do we do with the Mosaic law, ritual cleanliness, circumcision? These seem like silly things today, but, but these were very complex issues for the people of the time. And the but that Paul starts our passage with here places this story in opposition to what preceded it. And namely, that's the private meeting between Paul, James, Peter, and John in which Paul's gospel is affirmed. And you can read about this in verses 1 to 10. Uh, this is what I preached on last time in December. Um, but basically... This is placing this whole story. Paul wants us to understand this story is in opposition to Peter's conduct in 1 to 10. He's contrasting the affirmation of his gospel with the hypocrisy in 11 to 14. So this is the backdrop for the conflict. But before we kind of dive into why what Peter did was wrong, 
and the consequences that ensue, I, I want us to kind of st- take a step back and ask the question, why does Peter actually do what he does? It seems, seems a bit strange given what Derek just read to us. Now, this is a hard question to answer because we don't actually ever get an account of this story from Peter's side. There's no definitive answer here, but we do get some hints from the language that's used in the passage and from the rest of Scripture. And I think it would be helpful for us to understand some of the pressures that Peter is facing at this time. And to do that, I first want to make clear what is not happening here. What is not happening here? Peter's actions are not reflective of this fundamental schism between Peter and Paul over what constitutes the gospel. We have a significant body of evidence that suggests Paul and Peter were of one mind. Peter himself was the one who first eats with Gentile Christians in opposition to Jewish law. Derek read in Acts 11 how God gives Peter this vision And he has made clean all the foods that a God-fearing Jew would never eat. And then right after that, Peter goes to Cornelius' house, a Gentile, and shares the gospel with him and stays with him. And he's actually defending his actions against many of the same objections that are causing this crisis in the church that has led to Paul writing Galatians in the first place. The point of the matter here is that Peter and as Paul is going to mention a little bit later in, the, in, in our passage, is breaking Jewish law left, right, and center. And so we saw that in Galatians 2, 1-10, there's this agreement as to what the gospel is and that Jewish law did not need to be imposed on the Gentiles. And in particular, Timothy, who's Paul's Gentile protege, was not required to be circumcised. So there's no fundamental disagreement between Peter and Paul. Then why does Peter draw back? And the key to this, I think, can be found in verse 12, in the phrase where it says, fearing the circumcision party. Now, circumcision party here refers to the Jews. It's not Jewish Christians. It's the Jews as the people set apart from the Gentiles, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. You see, Galatians was probably written somewhere around 48 AD. There is is a little disagreement on the exact dating of it, but but we know it's roughly in that time period. And the political situation in Judea is getting pretty tense at this time. The zealots are on the rise. Jewish nationalists who want to overthrow Rome, and ultimately, only 20 years later, they're going to rise up. And the Romans would siege and sack Jerusalem. And the reason why this is important for Jewish Christians is there's a lot of pressure on the Jewish population not to associate with Gentiles, to demonstrate your purity and commitment to the cause. Preserve your Jewishness. The zealots regularly murdered people who they viewed as apostates or sympathizers. And this was a problem for the church in Jerusalem because the Jews as a whole were pretty suspicious of Christianity. There were a lot of suggestions that they were apostates and they were defiling themselves, that it was a sect that was rejecting Jewish law. So how do you think the Jews at large, and in particular the zealots, would have reacted to learning that Jewish Christians in Antioch were hanging out with the Gentiles and eating with them? This would have confirmed their worst fears about this new sect. And if you were to look at our passage in verse 12, Peter changes his action after something happens, after some guys come from James. 
Now, James here is the half-brother of Jesus. This is not James the apostle. This is James the half-brother of Jesus, who is the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. He's the guy running the church in Jerusalem. He's actually one of the guys, he's the James in verses 1 to 10 who actually affirms Paul's gospel. And these guys come from James, and Peter, because he fears the Jewish people, stops eating with Gentile believers. I mean, these guys from James come and maybe express some concerns about the conduct of the Jewish Christians and the impact that this would have on the persecution in the church of Jerusalem. And so you have what seems like a very pragmatic decision. I mean, I don't want the church in Jerusalem to be persecuted, so maybe I'll just draw back. And you know, Peter has a history of being afraid, doesn't he? If we were to look back at Matthew 14, the disciples are out on a boat and Jesus comes walking to them in the water, and what happens? Verse 28, and Peter answered him, Lord, if you command me to come out to you on the water, Lord, if if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink and cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Or what about Matthew 26? Verses 69 to 75. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you were also with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. He was afraid. And when they saw him to the entr- at the entrance, uh, when, when he went out to the entrance rather, another servant girl saw him and said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath saying, I do not know this man. And after a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows three times, so before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Never underestimate the power of our culture or our comfort zone, peer pressure and fear to drive our decisions. But, but whatever the reason Peter uses to justify himself, I, I think John Calvin's analysis of, this, of his actions probably gets best to the heart of this issue. This is what John Calvin had to say. It is foolish to defend what the Holy Spirit has condemned by the mouth of Paul. This was no human business matter, but involved the purity of the gospel. And this kind of brings us to the central issue that Paul wants us to see here and to understand about this confrontation. You see, Peter is in sin. Whether or not he had good reasons for his actions, the fact remains that he is breaking fellowship with other believers, and he's undermining the gospel in the process. By his actions or his inactions, he has separated believers into two categories, the haves and the have-nots. And this implicitly means you're no longer saved by faith in the finished work of Jesus. You're saved by the finished work of Jesus and circumcision and a bunch of other Jewish ceremonial law. You see, Peter is not guilty of some sort of honest mistake. He should have known better, and his sin had serious consequences. 
Last time I preached, I used the example of alcohol to put circumcision into a modern context. But let me also make sure we understand there are many ways that we can do this. It is one thing, and in fact, there's a biblical warrant for me to say, I'm going to make a personal decision not to consume alcohol or not to watch certain movies or how I spend my money or whether I work on Sundays. But it's quite another thing to say that because that guy over there chooses to do or not do one of those things, I'm not going to hang around him. I'm going to stay away from him. I'm going to cut myself off from a segment of the body of Christ. I'm going to declare that he or she doesn't measure up to me. You see, what was at stake here in this quarrel over table fellowship was, as Timothy George says, nothing less than the unity and indivisibility, that means you can't separate it, of the body of Christ. And I want you to understand here, guys, in Galatians, it's circumcision and Jewish ceremonial purity laws. But in James, it's favoritism. In Corinthians, it's rich and poor. The unity of the body of Christ around the gospel is really, really, really important. And this should make us pause because the Bible takes this idea of us breaking fellowship very seriously. Peter was supporting a faction in their sim to the detriment of the body as a whole. And as a consequence, he stands condemned before God. If you were to look at verse 11, that's what that phrase means. When it says Peter stands as one condemned, it means he's like condemned by a tribunal. That's the, what the, the Greek sort of means there. And in this case, the judge in the case is none other than the risen Christ, the risen Lord. What happened in Antioch is not this difference of opinion or some minor doctrinal point. This is an adding of requirements to the gospel and shunning and refusing to be with those who don't go along with you. It doesn't matter what our perceived hurts are, what our differences of opinion are. If you are a member of this church, then the Bible compels us all to be in fellowship, to rally together to see the gospel go forward. And what makes this whole situation worse is the hypocrisy of the whole thing. And Peter's, sorry, Paul is quick to point this out. Now, hypocrisy is a word that we, we throw around a lot, isn't it? Uh, we hear it a lot. But what does it actually mean? Well, the word hypocrite actually means actor. Someone in a play. And in the ancient Greek world, they wore these masks. I think there's going to be got a picture of one up here. Yeah, so there's a hypocrite mask. Um, And they wore these masks which had these exaggerated expressions on them, right? They had these exaggerated expressions, and they were meant to convey to the audience the mood of the actor. And Jesus uses this phrase in, in the New Testaments to refer to the Pharisees as actors. They were people who were hiding what they truly were, behind a mask, just playing the part. Their actions were not consistent with who they claimed to be. And in verse 13, Paul calls Peter a hypocrite. And then the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. We see we have Peter, a Jew, who's not really living like a Jew, or at least he hasn't been up to this point, now refusing to fellowship with Gentiles unless they start behaving like Jews. 
I think this is kind of one of the ironies of our sin. We're often so quick to spot these inconsistencies in others, but we're sort of blind to our own failings, aren't we? We can always find a way to justify our actions. But that brings us to the consequences. Because sin, it has consequences. Even the sin we think that no one knows about. And when leaders fail, those consequences can get pretty serious. But the fact is that all of our sin, every one of us, there's consequences for our sin. Peter's actions led to the entire Jewish community falling into sin. Half the church just decided they just weren't going to eat with the other half. Now, you need to understand that, because maybe in our context that doesn't seem as, as big a deal, but in the, Jewish, in the ancient world, eating together is a really big deal. It really is. This is not some minor issue, but a statement about their fellow believers' worth. You can't be close to someone you don't share meals with. But how often do we fall into these same patterns? I mean, what about when, when new people join the church? Do we exclude them because we're comfortable? Because it takes too much effort? And what is truly tragic about this Antioch episode, and what I think breaks Paul's heart the most, is that Barnabas joins in with the hypocrisy. Even Barnabas is led astray. Never underestimate the power of peer pressure. Barnabas, the guy who went with Paul to activate, act, advocate rather, sorry, on behalf of the Gentiles only a few verses before. He was with Paul going to Jerusalem trying to confirm the gospel. Barnabas, the guy who brought Paul up to Antioch in the first place. His friend, his comrade in the ministry, his ally in the cause of Christ. Barnabas is also led astray and falls into sin. And if anyone, if anyone apart from Peter should have known better, Barnabas should have. We're all perfectly capable of not living what we claim to believe. We're all capable of being hypocrites. And that kind of brings us now to the part which I'm sure you've all been looking forward to, the confrontation. Paul says in verse 11 that he opposed Peter to his face. Now, I just want you to understand, this doesn't necessarily imply hostility here. It's only the direct nature of the confrontation. Paul is not holding anything back. He's going all out. The gospel is at stake, and Peter stands condemned, so Paul cuts right to the chase. You are a hypocrite! There is a gap between what you profess and how you are acting. There is a gap between how you acted before and how you're acting now. Now, some of you might be warning, wondering, rather, why there is not a lot of grace shown here. There's not a lot of grace in this passage, is there? I mean, if we were to follow the Matthew 18 model, where you go privately first, and then you bring a witness, and then you present it before the whole church, everyone know that? Why doesn't Paul, why doesn't Paul do that? Well, I, I think the answer to this question, or there's maybe two answers to this question. The first is, 
We don't actually know that Paul didn't do this. Uh, All we have described for us here is the, the public rebuke. We don't know whether or not Paul and Peter talked privately about this prior to the confrontation. The second, however, is that this was not some sort of private sin. The unity of the church was at stake. The gospel was at stake. This issue needed to be addressed head on, and Paul needs to drive the point home that no one is above the gospel. If you were to look back to Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, he says, but if, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Peter's failure to live out the gospel is leading the church astray. It's creating two tiers of Christianity. The grace of Christ is being replaced with the works of man. And this is a matter of life and death. See, Paul wants to set the record straight and emphasize that Peter, despite being one of these pillars, is not above failure and he's not above the gospel. So that's the Antioch episode. But as fascinating and as interesting as this whole incident is, the question becomes, well, how do we apply this to our lives? What does, how is this relevant for us today? Because we're not fighting over circumcision. We're not fighting over Jewish ceremonial laws. None of us are Peter or Paul. The word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and the Bible says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So how do we apply this to our lives? How do we live this out? Well, I have, I have three points of application for us today. And the first of these I want to highlight is that our hypocrisy leads others astray. Now, in Peter's case, his hypocrisy had a massive impact, a massive impact on those around him. It leads to these deep divisions within the church. Even Barnabas becomes confused and joined in his sin. Now, you may be thinking, well, I'm not Peter. I don't have that much influence. This is only a problem for leaders. Didn't you entitle your sermon when leaders fail? Does it really matter what I do? Well, yes, it does. You see, every one of us has an impact on those around us. We do. This is why we're never meant to do the Christian walk alone. Why unity in the church and why the church itself is so important. But the flip side of that, of all the good impact we can have on each other, is that we can influence each other for the worse. Think about Corinthians. Paul says, when they get together, it is for the worse. And it doesn't matter what form this hypocrisy takes. We're perfectly capable of adding to the gospel and tearing down those around us. You know that bitterness that we hold in our hearts? Don't think for a moment that everyone around us doesn't see it or that it isn't teaching them that the gospel doesn't really cover all sin. You know, the cliques we form, the way we don't bother to put an effort to get to know new people, the way we tend to hang out with people who are like us, who make us comfortable, don't think that that doesn't communicate that the unity of the gospel only extends 
so far. The way we fight tooth and nail to have our own way, our preferences met, demand that our opinion be taken into consideration. Don't think that that doesn't tell those watching that the good news of the gospel is not what's most important to us. There's no such thing as private sin. It festers and it grows and it casts a shadow over everyone around us. And that's why we need each other, why we need the church, because like Peter, we're so often blind, aren't we? We need to be, con- we need to be confronted like Paul confronted Peter. And this brings me to our, my second application here, which is that our failure to confront sin is actually a failure to love. It's a failure to love. See, Paul's confrontation with Peter may not seem very loving. I mean, who likes to be called out to their face in public? But in fact, it was the most loving thing that Paul could possibly do for Peter or the Antioch church as a whole. Let me just give you a quick illustration by by way of example. Micah, my oldest, is in kindergarten. And a few weeks back, we received an email from his teacher. You see, his class was not behaving itself. And they had been particularly unruly the past few days and weren't listening to their teachers at all. They were making a mess. They were causing strife. It was, and it was, it was bad enough that they emailed all of the parents. Now, the easy thing to do would either be just, you know, ignore the letter, just hope it goes away. Probably wasn't my child's fault. My child is great. Like, you know, it wouldn't be him. Or to go to Mike and and yell at him and threaten him and say, if I ever get another letter from your teacher, you're going to get it, boy. But maybe that's not the best way to parent, is it? No, I had to sit him down and I had to walk him through why he needs to obey his teacher and why not listening to her is wrong and it is sin and that God doesn't approve and that I don't approve and the most loving thing I can do for my son is to confront him and point out his sin. Now we all understand that in a parenting context, but then why is it so hard to do the same for our fellow believers? I'm not suggesting that we have a big public session where you each come up one by one to the mic and air your grievances before the whole congregation. The situation that Paul is facing required that sort of response because of the particular danger involved in Peter's actions. There is a time and a place for public confrontation. But I want to ask you is, do we have the courage to confront one another about our sin and actually call it sin? Not just brush it off as a bad day. I know in my life, some of the most profound moments in my Christian walk have been when God, through my fellow believers, has called me to repent. And it wasn't just Daniel, you seem like you had a bad day. Are you feeling okay? It was, Daniel, you sinned. That was wrong. You need to repent. But do we love each other enough to say, you know those words you used? They came from a sinful heart. Your failure to make fellowship with fellow believers a priority, that's not just that you're busy or that you simply forgot to set your alarm. That was sin because you didn't love the gospel enough to make these things a priority. 
And I think this is the implication of this passage that God has most impressed on my heart. You see, I find it so easy to look the other way. It's so easy to take the path of of least resistance and not love those around me. There are times I've watched others sin and I've failed to act because it it was too hard. It was caused too much conflict. I was too scared, just like Peter. Because you know, it doesn't always work out the way you would hope. It's much easier just to say, they had a bad day, let's forget it. Go with the flow, maybe they'll feel better tomorrow. It'd be too difficult to have a discussion of heart issues, of the sin in their heart that led them to say these things. And if I did, you know what? That might force me to examine my own heart and realize that the same bitterness, anger, resentment, selfishness, pride, lust, you name it, it's all in here too. And my failure on that part has consequences. It's impacted others because I didn't love them enough to point them to Christ. And it impacted everyone around them because my inaction legitimized their sin. And you know what the truth is? I failed some of you. And I'm going to fail you again. And this is where we come to our third application because there's a big but here. There's a big but in all of this. Despite that that our failure to confront sin not being love, and despite that our hypocrisy leading others astray, there's hope because the gospel is bigger than our failures. And this is not directly in the text, but if we kind of take a step back and look at the scriptural context around it, we can see here that ultimately the gospel prevails. This entire issue This big fight about circumcision and Gentiles and Jews is going to come to a head in Acts 15. So if you're interested, you can go ahead and read Acts 15 later, when the Jerusalem Council officially is going to rule on this issue, and they're going to decide this issue. And I suspect there was probably still, it still continued for a while, but this is when they fully decide publicly. And when I look at this story, I've often wished we had Peter's side of it, his recounting of what happened. But there is, in a way a sense in which we do get his reaction to it. So, if you want to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 to 16. Peter says, In the wrong place. There we go. 15 to 16. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters. And when he speaks of of them in these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Paul calls 
Peter, rather, calls Paul's writing scriptures. And get this, you know what that includes? It includes the letter to the Galatians in which Paul narrates how he called Peter out. Peter is affirming Paul's narrative. And this should give us so much hope because the ultimate power of the gospel to go forward no matter how much we screw it up and the power of the gospel to overcome our failings. Have you ever broken a relationship by your your unkind words or your selfish actions? The gospel has the power to forgive hearts, hurts rather, and restore friendships. Have you ever stood by and failed to call sin for what it is? Have you implicitly led people astray by your inaction? Have you been a hypocrite? Do your actions not reflect what you say you believe? The gospel has power to forgive and change hearts. Are you mired in sin? Do you feel like you're not good enough? The gospel has power to forgive no matter how badly we failed. And do you know we can have that forgiveness right here, right now? You see, what is so wonderful about the good news that Paul fought so hard to protect is that we don't actually have to do anything. Jesus did it for us, and if we put our hope in him, we get his right standing before God as if we'd done nothing wrong. You see, the gospel is so much bigger than our failures. It's bigger than Peter's failures. It's bigger than Barnabas's failures. It's bigger than Paul's failures, and it's bigger than your failures. And that should give us all great hope. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a sovereign God. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords and that your word goes forth. Lord, I thank you, Lord, for your word. For the conflict we saw today, Lord, I pray that you would drive your word deep into our hearts, that we would listen and obey. I pray, Lord, that we would have hope and we would trust that you are bigger than our failures, that your word will go forth no matter how much we screw up. I pray that you would give us that hope and sink that hope deep into us. In the name I pray, amen.